Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 234 of the ETPHDT podcast with myself and Georgia. Hi Georgia, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you very much. How are you? I'm great, thank you. We've just spent the last 10 minutes talking about our grey hairs. It's been a good time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The blonder I get, the more grey hairs I'm getting. So for future reference, if I'm sometime platinum blonde in the near future, it's because I am pretty much entirely grey. Um, but yeah, anyway, today's podcast, we're talking specifically about PCOS because it's a topic that obviously we get a lot of questions about and a large proportion of our clients that we work with have PCOS and you specifically work with a lot of people with PCOS. And so um, we realised, like I realised the other day, I thought we had a podcast on PCOS and then when I looked for it, I thought, oh, completely fabricated that one in my brain um so something that I talk about a lot on, on um, EIQ nutrition like I, I do the women's health lecture on EIQ and I speak about it a lot but um I think for you because you've worked with so many people with PCOS it's nice to get talk about some of the strategies we can use in terms of nutrition training stress management etc but then also talk about really like applicably what that means because I don't know about you but I've listened to PCOS podcasts before where I'm like either they're not evidence-based and they kind of go off into tangents around like food exclusion and stuff like that or they're really evidence-based and they're not person-based and then I'm like that's great in terms of the evidence but like can a a person actually follow through with that nutritional recommendation I struggle to find people that talk about like that middle ground shockingly yeah a few that I've listened to have been really um they have been evidence-based but they've been very very in-depth conversations around like the interactions with different hormones and I'm like I'm lost (laughs) goodness knows what anyone else is going to do with that one it's like okay so what can I actually do day to day to to help me support my symptoms and I think what comes across from client conversations like when I first kind of have a chat with people is the absolute fear and confusion because they go on google and it's like a billion different recommendations that are pulling them in different directions and then a lot of the time the recommendations from the doctor is just go on the pill come back when you want to get pregnant and there's no real support for like oh okay what what else do I do how else can I support my health so yeah there's definitely um a bit of a gap for sure and I think actually you've raised such a good point there PCOS does is you do need to get it diagnosed through medical professional first and foremost and it falls within that category of well women's health where some of the support that you get from it from certain um GPs or doctors can be better than others and sometimes with women's health you do have to advocate more for yourself it's the same with hypothalamic amenorrhea or irregular periods in any way often for some people I, this is not the norm in medicine but sometimes it, it is just kind of you're brushed off you're given the contraceptive pill and you're told to go away and that can feel really invalidating and I love the NHS, specifically in the UK, and I think doctors do a fantastic, incredible job with the resources that they have. But for sure, we have a, a lack of research into women's health and um, our hormones in general. But B, there is a, still a lack of understanding. And sometimes 
I think the medical profession looked to manage the symptoms rather than kind of look any deeper beyond like realistically what we can do, like slightly higher up the chain of, um, well, piece of waste management, right? Yeah, the actual lifestyle stuff underlying everything else, which can work really well in combination with medication as well. Exactly. So we're definitely not anti-medicine or anti-clinical support here. It's just about <laughs> balancing it all. Um, I think importantly to kind of, kind of touch on first of all is the diagnostic criteria for PCOS if you think that you may be living with PCOS but you haven't had a diagnosis usually we use the Rotterdam criteria which is two out of three of either polycystic um, ovaries irregular periods or hyperandrogenism and which they would determine through a blood test and that's also by the way how they will determine if you have PCOS or HA sometimes they'll look at your um uh, blood profiles specifically your luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone and look at the ratios of those and they can they can tell like they're slightly different with HA and PCOS um but if you have two out of the three symptoms that's what they will use to diagnose PCOS but I think there's a bit of confusion around like the varieties of that so you might have um hyperandrogenism and irregular periods but no polycystic ovaries so you can have hyperandrogenic anovulation PCOS. You can have polycystic ovaries and hyperandrogenism, which is ovulatory PCOS. And you can have irregular menstrual cycles and polycystic ovaries, which is non-hyperandrogenic PCOS. And I wrote these down in order because I knew that I would get confused in my own head when I was thinking about it. So like you don't have to, like I said, it's two out of the three. So you don't have to have all of these things. So if you go to your doctor and you're like, um, you know, I've got irregular periods and, and then they see that you've got polycystic ovaries, just because you don't have hyperandrogenism, hyperandrogenism doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have PCOS. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's really interesting to note is that, yeah, you don't have to have actual cysts to have polycystic ovary syndrome. You just have to have some of the symptoms of the syndrome. But also you may go to the doctor and you don't know if you have cysts, you may, like you may have symptoms. I had very physical symptoms. I could tell you exactly where my ovaries are on my body, um, but they would need to investigate that with a scan, like um, sort of like a, an internal scan, uh, just to actually see if there are any cysts there. So that's kind of like an invisible symptom and really hard to say, oh, I think I've got this going on. So you, you, do definitely need to kind of go to the doctor with the other symptoms that you have, even if it's only one symptom, and get that explored. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it, it's quite scary to think, oh my god, an internal exam, and it's really scary. And I would love to hear your experience in terms of PCOS and how that went for you in terms of diagnosis. But whenever you've got anything that feels irregular or not quite right in terms of your periods or in terms of like your vagina, your vulva, your ovaries, any of that, it can feel really, really daunting to go in. And then you're like, oh my God, I then have to have this internal scan. I've had these internal scans before and they're absolutely, like, they're fine. They're, they're not the most comfortable things in the world, but they're not like this big scary thing. And sometimes I, I think that we can put things off because we fear what the answer is going to be. So we don't do it. And actually, especially with like, I, I call it reproductive health, we call it reproductive health, but I don't know if that's now something that's maybe moving away from because it's not about your just about fertility, right? But at the moment, like reproductive hormones and stuff, sometimes I think it can be a really scary thing. So in terms of your like your journey with it, if you don't mind, like you don't have to share this, but like what was your journey like in terms of diagnosis? Oh yeah, no, really happy to share. Um it actually took a long time, which is pretty common for most women. It took probably um about 
five to six years for me to be diagnosed because I, I couldn't even really tell you exactly when my symptoms started because you know in, in teenage years you do have irregular periods and they can be very heavy it wasn't until I was sort of in my early to mid-20s that I was just like this can't be normal with the dysmenorrhea that I was having and I was often told by my doctor um through no fault of his own he was just well this is normal for you you've always been like this and I was like okay that's how I am and then I was like I genuinely cannot live like this this is just kind of crazy and the pain that I was getting in my um ovaries I was like this cannot be normal like I can feel myself ovulate that's not um a pleasant experience <laughs> yeah your face is about right yeah um so eventually after kind of going back again and again and again and saying look the, the pill isn't helping me <laughs> I don't feel well this isn't normal um and I had, so one of the symptoms that I had of the hyperandrogenism was just really bad acne all the time on my face, on my neck, on my chest, on my back. Um, and so actually it's probably good to touch on what hyperandrogenism can look like because it can show up differently for everybody. So they, they finally sent me off for um, a, an internal scan um, and they, they did actually find them and there and then the nurse was really lovely she was like oh yeah we can see there isn't this you know there's one on this ovary and there's nothing on the other one so this is kind of like early stages and then when I went back for my second scan which was just a couple of months later there were multiple cysts and the one that they'd identified previously it was the size of a grapefruit so it was huge I know <laughs> and they said you know, they didn't reassure me they said you know your cysts can change in size so they could be very large and then in a couple of months time they could be very small again um but obviously when they're large that's that's a lot of of volume of tissue inside your body where it's not supposed to be and it was very very painful um so they did a, this word i always struggle to pronounce a laparoscopy all right my goodness yeah I did it in one <laughs> so they yeah they like a, it was keyhole surgery like really really tiny just go through your belly button um have a quick look at what else is going on just to rule out things like endometriosis and um anything else um and sort of obviously they just check for anything that could be a little bit more sinister like uh kind of like tumors or anything like that they recognized that it was just the cysts um and then they kind of gave me the option of just kind of sitting with it and hoping for the best and seeing what happens um or I could have um surgery to drain the cysts um and at that point I was like right I can't I really can't carry on like the way this is so I did choose to have the surgery to drain the cysts um and I would actually say that I don't know if I would do that again and this is just because for me those cysts came back very quickly and it was almost like the surgery wasn't worth having um so I never opted for surgery again after that because I was like, if they're going to come and go, I'm not going to keep having surgery each time. It's it's a lot to put your body through. Um, but they also give you all the warnings of, you know, it, worst case scenario, we'd have to remove an ovary. Worst case scenario, if that goes wrong, full hysterectomy. Worst case scenario, we remove your bowel and all of these things. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm not going to keep taking that risk every time. Um but this is pre any kind of research from my point of view of um, like what else I could do lifestyle wise nutrition. So after that surgery, I kind of made it my mission to really pay attention to everything else that I could do because I was like that I have to be able to improve my health outside of surgery. And that's kind of where my my research started, I think, really.
Oh God, I love that they're like, yeah, just love a grapefruit around with you for the rest of your life. That's ideal. It's wild. It is wild. And I think you kind of touched on a point there in terms of hyperandrogenism, like how that shows up. And for you, it showed up acne in certain areas or what feels like a lot of areas. And um, But also for some people, it might show up as like abnormal facial hair or not abnormal, but like relatively more growth of facial hair. You might find mm-hmm. that what I think is an interesting statistic actually so you might find that you build muscle more easily um and the like the PCOS prevalence of PCOS in athletes compared to non-athletes is significantly higher which makes sense morphologically of especially certain athletes um strength athletes short distance runners etc because of the potential impact it can have on your muscle mass um which I think is you know you you don't get many great outcomes with this so We'll cling on to that one, um, but yeah, it can show up in different ways in different people. I have a myth in terms of hyperandrogenism, how it might show up. Uh, so the other point on hair is you can get um, hair loss, which is typically called like male pattern balding, but it just might mean that your hair is thinning or kind of pulling out. Um, maybe it's thinning in the middle at the back, or it might be like a receding um, hairline, um, which you know, for many women can be a huge, huge um, psychological factor, which comes along with PCOS as well in terms of like self-esteem and um, how that can play into, obviously we'll kind of touch on it in a bit, but how that can play into your confidence in your body and your appearance and then how you kind of emotionally eat and, and binge from there as well. So um, in fact, I was actually talking to a client this morning, we were having a chat um, and she was talking to me about some symptoms that she'd had and her doctor had said no everything's come back kind of normal like there's nothing to think about here but what she had told me was that she'd had operation um in the past on some cysts so there was a good chance there may still be regrowth of cysts because it's like 20 years ago um that she's got a lot of hair loss recently as well um and there's like a little bit of insulin resistance and I was like well all of these things are kind of pointing in the direction that actually there there might be PCOS kind of like underlying what's going on right now um it was just that her doctor hadn't kind of pieced all the other pieces together so I just had to take all of this when you go to your gynecological appointment and present everything at once and hopefully they're going to pick that up and kind of run with the symptoms that you've got yeah and I think that's such a good point like empowering yourself to uh, learn your own body is something that we talk about all the time in terms of how your body responds to things and what it feels like to be connected to your body and all of these things and and being able to empower yourself in knowledge and then go to your your doctor is so so important that you so you don't feel helpless in, in that sense okay so in terms of then let's go with basics nutrition um what are the kind of basic nutritional strategies that you start with with people with PCOS? Um, the absolute basics will be trying to balance out a nice steady energy release throughout the day. So eating regular meals, eating in a structured way. Um, and as much as we may say breakfast is not the most important meal of the day in PCOS, it can be really helpful to make sure that you get a breakfast, particularly high in protein and higher in fiber. So you don't necessarily have to have like broccoli for breakfast, but if you can get some fruit into a high protein breakfast, something like that is going to be a sort of a basic go-to. Um, and then choosing predominantly lower glycemic index carbohydrates. So slower releasing carbohydrates. Um, again, lots of fruit and veg with your meals, prioritizing protein with each meal as well. And as much as I know people get bored of hearing like protein, protein, the majority of people do eat quite a low fiber, 
low protein diet so it's very helpful to be intentional with that um I think on that note too with the protein is um especially with PCOS is that there's some evidence that certain hunger and satiety hormones are are um dysregulated in PCOS so for example um cholecystokinin K CCK is a satiety hormone and we see changes in um with PCOS with that so that you may feel that you have a higher appetite or reduced um, satiety and potentially more food cravings um, if you have PCOS. Potentially, there's also some differences, some shift in like the hunger hormone ghrelin. Um, ghrelin makes you hungry, hum- hunger grumble. Um, so there's some evidence that potentially that is shifted with PCOS. So protein is so, so important to ensure, protein and fiber are so, so important to ensure that you're managing your hunger levels throughout the day. Um, so just to kind of touch on that, what was I going to say? I can't remember. Feel free to continue. Oh, well, I was just going to slightly build on the point that you made. So protein and fiber as well, that's really beneficial for um, reducing insulin resistance because you're rather than having like a quite a quick um, peak spike of blood glucose from a meal that maybe is very easy to digest, maybe it's quick releasing carbohydrates. Um, so for example, something like jam on toast would be quite a quick releasing meal um if you are having more fiber more protein it takes longer to digest so not only are you supporting um your hunger and your fullness like you mentioned but also you're supporting a slower release of energy as well so you're less likely to get these dips in energy um, and you're also going to reduce the chance of getting these cravings throughout the day because you're kind of low on energy yeah and you touched on insulin resistance there so for reference the statistics the most recent statistics i found was that 90 percent of people with overweight or obese PCOS and 75% of people with lean PCOS experience insulin resistance. So that is something that we have to be mindful of. And I think that's a point too of um, often people think, oh, if you have PCOS, you're in a certain body shape or body type. And and although relatively speaking, more people have the kind of overweight, obese PCOS phenotype, you can also have lean PCOS. And the recommendations that we're making here are for everyone. We will touch a little bit on weight loss. And obviously that's not, that's not going to be um relevant to people with lean pcos yeah i'd say from like the client point of view the, the clients i've worked with i couldn't tell you that there is a, a a type of body that has pcos from the people that come to me there's you know shapes and sizes um larger bodies and even some very very lean lean bodies i thought you, i thought i didn't think you said shapes and sizes i thought you said something else and i was like oh, that's a, a <laughs> okay you can tell me afterwards what you thought you said. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something so so once you've got your regular meal pattern, you're eating protein. And realistically, when we're talking about protein, for with PCOS, I would recommend upwards of 1.6, 2.2 grams per pro, of protein per kilogram body mass per day, spread equally about four meals a day-ish. Um, and then once you've packed those meals with fiber, with um, low GI carbohydrates, and you're eating regularly and eating mindfully, sometimes we forget all of the stuff that we always talk about because it's so basic in terms of all of our methods but making sure that you are sitting down to eat your meal mindfully that will help you in terms of one managing your calorie intake two enjoying your meals probably I should word that the other way around not in any particular order um and on top of that what you might find is having these meals potentially structured a little bit more around training so or when you're moving because the amazing thing about exercise is that it stimulates glucose uptake into the cells much like insulin does insulin is a great hormone people fear it but actually insulin is great and when you become um insulin resistant 
you struggle with this glucose metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism in your body, right? And both insulin and exercise work to increase glucose uptake into the cells, which is good. Like we want glucose to be stored in our cells, like our muscle cells, healthy storage space for it, right? Um, but they work in very different signaling pathways, which we're not going to get into. Point being, if you have some level of insulin resistance, it's a really good idea to, if you can, um, maybe structure some of your meals around training, maybe go for short walks after some meals just to help with insulin sensitivity. So um, if you're, if you, this is you, then you might decide, okay, well, I'm going to have predominantly more of my carbohydrates around training a little bit more before because I'll fuel a session, have a really good session. And then maybe a little bit more after, um, whilst I kind of, I'm at that kind of peak insulin sensitivity for my body because I've just done a lot of movement. Yeah, exactly. Like whether that's in the morning, if you like to train sort of before work, you can just have more carbs in your breakfast. It's very exciting. And if you tend to train in the evening, then you might have a lower carb breakfast in the morning and you might have more of it before or after your training um, in the evening. And like 10 minute walks after meals are a game changer because it's so easy to fit in on a lunch break if you get half an hour and it's 10 15 minutes to eat 10 minutes to go for a walk on the block um fantastic and that that's something that I still do every day like regardless of the weather unless it's icy in which case I perceive the health benefits to be better to stay indoors but otherwise yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> completely, completely agree I think the sooner is a as a general rule guideline the sooner we can get comfortable with walking in miserable weather the better like I know some people are like oh it just wasn't nice weather so I didn't go out and like I know that's not amazing and some people have health conditions I mean then they can't do that but realistically it's like no such thing as bad weather only bad clothing um mm -hmm. something you touched on there maybe if you're training in the morning having more of your carbohydrates earlier in the morning there was a cool study um in lean people with lean PCOS that front-loaded calories so the breakdown was um people had 980 calories for breakfast 640 calories at lunch and 190 calories at dinner versus the opposite way around so I can't remember the specific numbers but I think it was roughly again 190 calorie breakfast 640 calorie lunch and a 900 calorie at 980 calorie dinner what they found was that people that front loaded their energy intake so had that higher calorie breakfast and lower calorie dinner um with lean PCOS had a reduction, a 50% reduction in free testosterone, i.e. androgens, 105% increase in um, CHBG and lowered their postprandial insulin activity, i.e. potentially had improvements in blood glucose control. So with some of my clients with PCOS, once we've kind of got the basics in place, I think this is the important thing, like get the basics in place first. But once they've got the basics in place and they're like, okay, well, I wonder like, what else can I do? Is there anything else I can do? And they're maybe, especially if they're struggling with PCOS symptoms, then some one of the things I might do is say, okay, well, let's try front loading your calories. I've never done as extreme as a thousand calorie breakfast and 200 calorie dinner. Um, I don't think that's really realistic in terms of lifestyle, but we have this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like tendency as a population, especially in fitness and health to backload our calories and not eat much in the day. And then we overeat at night or, um, even if it's because we're eating with our families at night, so we want more calories, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's about how this fits into your life. But even if you can just shift some of your calories earlier in the day, you might find not only does it help in terms of your hunger regulation, because we know that again, in non-PCOS, front-loading your calories can help with appetite and hunger regulation, um, which is really cool. Um, 
but even if it does if it's beyond hunger it might actually help your androgen profile as well which is just incredible um and i think again with pcos there may be a reduction in basal metabolic rate so your the calories that you require day to day may be slightly low in some without pcos so you might have to consume slightly less to maintain weight so your hunger might be higher anyway plus all these shifts in your hormones so it's like okay well if something as simple as having more calories early in the day could potentially help that let's try it yeah i love that approach and i think that that's kind of the way that I portray it to my clients and it's certainly the way that I frame things for myself is that you don't have to do any of these things but you get to and when there are all these little things that you can do that stack up on top of each other and can make this difference to your life to your um your health and I think it's worth bearing in mind that when we're talking about PCOS you also have an increased uh, risk of diabetes, of cardiovascular disease, uh, all of these things, metabolic syndrome, are a result of not treating PCOS through diet and exercise and, and lifestyle. So for me, it's like, well, I don't want to keep having surgery. And even if I loved surgery, that's really not a realistic way to approach the rest of my life. It's a condition that I'm always going to have. So it's not something that you do something once, tick a box and it's gone. It is ongoing management. So if there are all these little tools and skills that you kind of have in your in your bag and you can kind of like whip them out, it makes sense to stack up the ones that you can. And like you said, you might not be able to do all of them because you might want to go for dinner um, with friends and family. And that's not an issue but you may choose for 50% of the time to do it the other way around and, and have more of your calories in the morning. And who doesn't love like a big hearty breakfast? It's my favorite meal of the day anyway. I'm actually really hungry right now, so I'm going to move on. Sorry. <laughs> and I think something just to touch on is don't cut out food groups. There's so many, you know, PCOS nutrition accounts saying cut out dairy, cut out sugar and and realistically there's no evidence to say that doing this is helpful and people who have pcos are in increased risk of things like binge eating disorder eating habits and anxiety depression and cutting out food groups only exacerbates that risk of overeating or binge eating we know that's from food exclusion so it's definitely something to avoid if someone's telling you to do these things avoid them like what's the phrase the plague And it's also not realistic, again, if you come back to the fact that this is a condition that you're going to be managing for the rest of your life, how realistic is it to never have dairy between now and the day you die or like gluten or carbohydrates? It's it's really, you're not looking for a quick fix here. You're looking for how can I support my body and my health for the rest of my life in a way that I can genuinely keep doing. And that absolutely is not through exclusion. Absolutely. Okay, supplements wise question. Like, I don't know about you, but I tend to get questions more about supplements rather than foods. Like, as in, what supplements can I take for PCOS? And it's like, supplements are great, but also, like, food comes first. Um, but they can be great. And supplements, there are some supplements that we will always recommend. So, inositol is kind of a, a key one um, at four grams a day, acetyl L carnitine also um and berberine is something that I only started incorporating into my practice probably about 18 months ago really I don't know like about you but berberine I feel like was a little bit slower and the dose of that would be 1500 milligrams per day or three by 500 milligrams ideally um can potentially help berberine specifically can potentially help insulin sensitivity um with unregularity of menstrual cycle etc not at all there's some cool evidence around fertility ovulation um ovarian cell quality hyperangioninism it really is a kind of robustly researched supplement in terms of pcos 
Yeah, and it's also a very safe supplement as well. I think sometimes there's a bit of a fear if something isn't specifically a vitamin, it can feel a bit scary sometimes, but it's very safe to take. The very, very few side effects. I think it's it's like a little bit of GI discomfort or a little bit of nausea in such a statistically insignificant number of people that it's not even kind of a side effect that's worth really worrying about and you can if you need to split your dose across the day a little bit more if that helps you kind of manage it but um yeah I've never had anyone have any issues with it and there's also I don't know if you've read this it's some cool research in it's in much much higher doses than you'd be taking for PCOS but in higher doses it's great for things like um, mood management anxiety etc as well which obviously in PCOS can be a little bit more prevalent so you may be getting some additional little side benefits to that as well. Interesting I haven't read that Um, something to note is if you are taking metformin then don't just start taking these supplements that could potentially further impact your insulin sensitivity. Do speak to your doctor who is prescribing metformin and work alongside them to see what the right situation for you is in this in this case. Um, and of course, um, vitamin D and calcium. So you, you did some cool research around vitamin D in people with PCOS, right? <laughs> you said cool research. I was like, was it cool? It's cool, um, own it. It's cooler than my research I used to do. Well, do you know what? I will find out actually in two weeks' time if it was cool or not. Um, when I get my results. But yeah, I did the dissertation on um on PCOS and vitamin D supplementation and how that may or may not um impact insulin resistance in PCOS. And yeah, there was there was some cool outcomes there's some evidence that it may increase insulin sensitivity or um yeah but the how am I gonna say this it, it's one of those things where it was like there was as much evidence that said it did support insulin resistance as there was that said there was no difference mm-hmm. so it's not something that I would say rush out and buy but vitamin D is recommended anyway if, if you're living in the UK for sure you're not getting enough sun unless it's um maybe right now <laughs> I think, but I think that's the point that's the point right it's like vitamin d supplementation probably year round in the uk is helpful so take it anyway and the evidence with vitamin d and calcium combined there's some evidence in pcos and menstrual regularity which is cool so again calcium especially if you're cutting out dairy like you're missing out on quite a bit there um which you should be doing anyway as we've just said and um, but it's something to be mindful of um but the statistic that you shared earlier, Georgia, was 70% of UK PCOS women are vitamin D deficient and 90% of people with lean PCOS are vitamin D deficient. And I and I, I wonder what the relative comparison of that is with people who without PCOS in terms of, I just think a lot of women in the UK are probably vitamin D deficient. We all are deficient in the D. In the D, we need more D. We do, some of us more than others. Okay, training. Um. Obviously, we support our clients with all different types of training and and even without PCOS, we're looking at things like resistance training, um, cardiovascular training, yoga, et cetera. So there's some cool research around like if you like if you said if you had to prescribe one type of training or movement for someone with PCOS, what would it be? Ooh. Okay, if it was if it was one type of training, it would be resistance training. If it was only one type of movement, then it would just be walking, like just walk a whole lot more. If I'm allowed to combine them, please miss, then it would be resistance training and just more general activity, so more walking. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. Um, 
resistance training is so important in terms of again insulin sensitivity managing um hyperandrogenism building muscle mass as a metabolic store in your body super super important um very small changes in terms of um metabolic rate but you know when you have PCOS, every little bit can be supportive. There was a um, some research that came out in 2020 that, that identified in terms of all different types of movement, resistance training in people with PCOS had the biggest effect on reducing androgens. Um, so make sure that you're like a minimum, I would say, in an ideal world, a minimum of three training sessions a week, resistance training sessions a week, three full body sessions a week is sufficient. And I do think with PCOS, potentially full body training sessions, if you're only doing three, like is really important because like you want to stimulate the maximum amount of muscle mass um, in your training session. Yeah, for sure. And something that comes to mind when you were saying that as well, do you remember the um, the EIQ event where, sorry, level up events where Richie was talking about, um, was it the GLIP, GLIP4 or GLIP4? five um transported and I was like in my mind I'm just like oh the more I lift the more I train the more like muscle mass I get like <laughs> the better my my cardiovascular health is going to be when I'm doing nothing and that's really motivating to me just to kind of know that actually I can improve how um my body is kind of like dealing with um changes in blood glucose levels independently of exercise like by doing lots of other exercises at the time like that's very motivating for me I don't know if I really explained that in a way that made sense but in my head I'm envisaging that little slide with everything like all the glucose going in and out and I was like that's what I'm doing for my body right now yeah but I think yeah if you can visualize every time you move and again we're talking about specifically here in insulin resistance right we're not saying to people everyone move all the time please listen to this aware of your own lens but in terms of insulin resistance whenever you're moving and having exercise snacks or training or whatever and increasing this glute four transcation and increasing this glucose uptake into your cells as you're doing you're like adding such metabolic health gains points to your life let's go with that um okay other things, like that. <laughs> other things in terms of training would i would encourage you to include and i'm, I'm sure you'll do the same hit training yoga mm-hmm yeah and I would also encourage some general cardiovascular fitness as well like you don't you don't have to run for hours and hours on end but doing um some aerobic activity as well as the hit training as well and this doesn't look like training seven days a week because you're doing three three full body sessions you may do three full body sessions and you might do a bit of hit after one or two of them and then you may do one or two cardiovascular sessions elsewhere in your week or after your resistance training so it's not about having to um be in the gym constantly I think that's really important to remember totally agree and I think yoga is really really cool because there is some preliminary evidence around its support in hyperandrogenism and insulin sensitivity um but the reason that we obviously really encourage it kind of collectively with ETPHD is the the connection that it and creates between you and your body and how it supports embodiment and embodiment is really what we're looking at to try and support our, our more positive body image to try and improve introspection introspection and kind of our ability to like become more self-aware and listen to ourselves listen to our own um, introspective awareness i.e hunger fullness emotions etc um and consistent yoga practices support is associated with more positive body image 
all of these things are impacted with PCOS. So again, trying to include some yoga in, and it doesn't have to be this excessive thing. I spoke to somebody, yeah, yeah, no, it was today on Instagram who said, you know, I started doing yoga, I hated it, but I started doing it because you said do the down dog app. And I'm now I just started with five minutes a day and now I'm really into it. And it's like, that's all like start with five minutes a day. Down dog app is great. Um, and then just try and build up a little bit over time, but it doesn't have to be anything major. Yeah, exactly. And I think that also really helps with stress reduction and stress is a huge kind of player in PCOS as well. Um, but not only that, like stress tolerance and stress management can really, or lack of, sorry, can really impact emotional eating as well. So if you are susceptible to overeating, emotional eating, you've got these strong um urges and cravings then actually introducing something like yoga which is not taking you to track all your calories and hyper focus on food is actually just helping you reduce your stress again it's one of those little things that you can kind of wield as a tool like a powerful tool that has nothing to do with um increasing food preoccupation it may actually help to reduce food preoccupation because your stress is more yeah and then i think like we'll touch on fat loss because obviously um, I, I mean the research around PCOS and fat loss in terms of people who are, have overweight or obese phenotype is pretty clear um, 2 to 5% of weight loss can support improvements in menstrual cycle regularity um, we see improvements in outcomes in terms of ovulation and pregnancy um, at 5 to 10% of total body weight loss it will also support things like hyperandrogenism and insulin sensitivity so we're certainly not saying everyone who is in a larger body and has PCOS should go on a fat loss diet but for sure, losing body fat, if you're in a larger body and you have PCOS, will likely improve your symptoms, whether you want a kind of traditional fat loss structured program or whether you work on your relationship with food and then that eventually leads to fat loss, whatever that looks like for you, fat loss can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, in terms of... Um, stress you kind of touched on that with yoga what what do you recommend and what do you see with clients in terms of stress management with PCOS oh that's a good question I mean obviously yoga (laughs) um and I actually find things like meditation really really helpful for clients to as a long-term strategy kind of like manage their emotions manage um well I'll say managing stress but that was the question you asked me in the first place um but also and this is going to sound like a strange one to come back to but eating initially eating quite regularly throughout the day really helps to reduce the stress that my clients are feeling over what they often describe as trying to control their body and and really focusing on things like um calories and tracking and what they should or shouldn't be eating and just eating really regularly can help increase that feeling of safety and not having to be thinking about everything they're possibly going to eat or everything they have eaten so that's kind of slightly off on a tangent um but yeah walking as well really great for stress management and reducing blood pressure and i know these are strategies that we've already touched on for other reasons but these all really really help with if it's an enjoyable walk rather than oh right it's this time i've got to go for my walk have to do it if it's more like okay I get to go for a walk right now and this is a nice break for me that can really help Um, yeah I think what's cool is that what you're saying is like a lot of the stuff we've mentioned before and that's great it's not like you need to overhaul your entire diet your entire physical activity regime and everything it's like a lot of these things cross over into overall management of PCOS it's not like this will will help insulin sensitivity this will help stress 
it all combines, which is great. I think just for reference, sometimes we can forget about stress management with PCOS and we just think about supplements or we just think about exercise. And when we think about stress management, um, we have to think of like, it's got a physiological reason behind it. Um, one reason is that the adrenal glands are, are, adrenal glands are a major site of androgen um, synthesis or production. And when our adrenal glands are chronically stimulated with chronic stress, this can contribute to the overproduction of androgen hormones and contribute to that hyperandrogenism. Um, so, and some people have adrenal dominant PCOS, so stress potentially is more of an impact here. So when we manage our stress levels, we reduce that um, activation or this chronic activation of our adrenal glands. And so we could potentially impact that um, overproduction of, of androgens and androgens and hyperandrogenism is one of the reasons we have the symptoms, right? So it is really, really important to look at stress. Um, so, I mean, I agree, we've done so many podcasts on stress management in the past, but things like um, self-compassion is really important. Like not, I think we really underestimate one of the biggest causes of stress is the own, the way that we talk to ourselves. The, there's some research on it, I wish I could remember it, that looked at like negative self-talk and self-criticism and the impact it has on things like nervous system response um, and stress response. We are responsible for the way that we treat ourselves and speak to ourselves. And if we're speaking to ourselves like trash, we're going to stress ourselves out more. When we're stressing ourselves out more, we're going to make our symptoms worse. If we're making our symptoms worse, it just becomes a cycle, right? So look at the way that you speak to yourself. Super important on um, a podcast that we did well, we recorded it this morning, but a couple of weeks ago on the Thursday podcast on the Q&A, we were talking about, you know, calling yourself out for the way that you speak to yourself and calling yourself out for body checking. It's like, look at the way that you speak to yourself. Can you notice the way you speak to yourself and then say stop every time that that comes up? Um, social connection, super important. Connection is, is so impactful in terms of how safe you feel, how like your sense of belonging, your overall stress levels, boundary setting, like looking at how off, like how much you're working how much time you're taking off how much you're putting other people before yourself and your own needs all of these things are impacting your stress response and then potentially impacting your health and we we don't talk enough about the impact of stress on our health and because a lot of the time people think well this is just because I've got kids or I've got a family and I've got a really busy job and I have to be this busy and it's like I can't imagine what it's like to have kids I only I'm around families with kids but not my own obviously but but it's like there's a difference between being super, super busy and then stressing yourself out because of being super busy. Now, I say this again with the privilege of not having kids and working for myself and all of these things. And there's a certain level of stress that you definitely can't avoid. But I just think collectively for our health, we need to look at, OK, well, where can I manage the stress? Where like what can I do to support myself a little better here? Mm yeah sorry just as you were saying that I was like thinking back to when my PCOS symptoms were like at their absolute peak and just everything that was going on in my life and I can a hundred percent pinpoint that the stress was what was really driving everything else that was going on um and it was just a a horror show so yeah what a vibe we're gonna gonna finish the podcast on Georgia's horror show vibe so great time um um, if you have any questions obviously just shoot them to me or to Georgia um but that was great thank you so much Georgia thank you for having me lovely to see you bye 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 
thanks so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it and as always if you did please do feel free to like share subscribe and review and if you would like to chat to me then you can find details of my instagram in the show notes